I'm Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to my series of podcasts called Don't Mess With Nature. I call them a series of conversational expeditions where we try and explore the relationship between natural capital and financial capital in our economy. I've spent most of my life with one foot in the rainforest and another foot in the boardroom. I'm a zoologist, but I've worked in the last 10 years extensively with the financial sector, trying to reimagine how our economy could work thinking about sustainable finance and impact investing and all these kinds of the tools that asset managers need to redirect money. And why do we need to redirect money? Well, I believe that if we don't change the movement of money, we'll continue to finance ourselves into extinction. And that's a bit scary, isn't it? And some of these podcasts are a bit scary because expeditions are a bit scary. So an expeditionary conversation or a conversational expedition is quite exciting, but there is a health warning. Like an expedition, you never quite know where they're going to end up. So enjoy listening. I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts that try to find a new state of equilibrium between nature and money. Well, on this particular podcast, I thought we'd have a look at what I call the equilibrium paradox. I call my company Equilibrium Futures because what uh, we try to do is to look for a, a better state of equilibrium between financial capital and natural capital. And that sounds easy to an extent, but it does create a, a paradox because of the way that our economy has been built over decades. An economy doesn't necessarily like being in a state of equilibrium because if you talk to someone who's a trader, they like to make money. And the whole thing that drives economies and trading and money supply is fear and greed. If you had a state of equilibrium between fear and greed, nothing would ever happen. That might sound like quite a nice, comfortable state, wouldn't it? Some people are terrified of going outside. They're called agoraphobic. Or you walk down a street. If you were absolutely totally calm, you had no fears, no greed, you were just coasting along. But that doesn't work very well for economies because what's happened over the last 50 years or so, post the Second World War, is something you might call the model of more. The model of more says you've got to have more of everything. It sells us the idea that we need more and more things to make our life happier and easier. So the model of more means that you've got to buy stuff and that creates trades and makes companies successful and others not successful. That's how the world goes around, doesn't it? The model of more. But the other interesting phenomenon that has happened is this, uh, this concept of growth. The idea that our economy only really works if it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and grows and grows and grows. And governments have a wonderful thing they look at called GDP, gross domestic product. That's a kind of measure of how big the economy is. And you hear it all the time. Politicians say, oh, uh, we're going to come back to, you know, I'm sorry, we're nearly in recession. That's when it's going to a minus number. We're only 1%, but we're going to be back to 4% soon. And, uh, you know, we've got to have it growth, growth, growth. You know, there's a funny old thing, though, is that in a finite system, how can you have constant growth. And our planet, that wonderful blue ball hanging in space, if you could imagine it from the Apollo missions when they took the first photographs of Earth 
sitting out there as a sort of combo of blue and white clouds and the sea. That beautiful blue planet is a finite place. Can you really have constant growth on a finite world? And I think David Attenborough summed it up quite well when he said that anyone who thinks that you can have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources is either a madman or an economist. So I thought we'd explore a bit of that. What lessons can we learn from nature about how to create a steady state but keep on going? How to create an equilibrium on the planet? Now, planet Earth is not a bad business. It's been going for about four billion years. And the Earth has more or less remained in some steady state. Our atmosphere has changed. As I said in an earlier podcast, it used to be full of CO2, about 95%. It's gone down to 0.04% today, and that's largely due to plankton and trees that have sucked carbon out of the atmosphere and given us back oxygen. And now CO2 is tiny. But the overall movement of life on Earth has gone through five major extinctions, and we're in the middle of the, the sixth extinction right now. The way our biodiversity economy has sort of worked is by ticking over quite well and then a massive reinvention. There have been five great extinctions on planet Earth over time, where anything up to 90% of what we had has disappeared and then regrown itself through, through evolution. And we're in this problem now where humans are taking over the planet, extinguishing a lot of life on Earth, and capturing most of the energy that drives the ecosystem on Earth, and turning it to our own use. So that's what we call the sixth extinction, and we're in something now called the Anthropocene, which is sort of the age of humans. We're not quite sure how that's going to play out. So how has Earth managed to create this dynamic but steady state? which fosters life on Earth. And, and actually, what we had until relatively recently, say 150 years ago, which is no time at all in geological time, was probably the greatest expression of life on Earth, the best it's ever been, with mammals and insects and rainforests and coral reefs. This unbelievable expression of biodiversity of life on Earth is unbelievably good. I think there's a concept that is worth thinking about. It's called dynamic equilibrium. Equilibrium may be a bit difficult, it sounds like nothing is happening. But dynamic equilibrium is when, in a financial sense or in a trading sense, the people who are buying things are roughly and, and completely in equilibrium with the people who are selling things. But there's loads of trades going on all the time. But the sum total creates a steady state. And that's sort of what dynamic equilibrium is. We have it in every cell of our bodies, where the chemicals going into our cells are equal to the chemicals going out of our cells, and it creates this steady state that keeps our body safe and working and healthy. That is a, a state of homeostasis, it's called in biology. And it's a pretty good one, and it only goes wrong when we get sick. And so this kind of steady state, it, it kind of reminds me when I'm thinking of, how can I relate that back to how nature's done it? And one of the, one of the systems that's really good for doing uh, as an illustration is the tropical rainforest. It's probably the greatest expression of evolution that this planet has ever come up with. If you were a business, this would be your absolute nirvana. It's a closed system. It sort of sips energy from the sun and it releases a tiny amount of waste uh, into the waters. 
And yet, inside that closed system, we have the biggest things on Earth that have ever lived, gigantic trees. We have the smallest things, tiny insects, fungi, tigers, jaguars, uh, eating things, producing chemicals, trees that fall down and die, eaten up by fungi. There's a lot going on. There's masses of trades. And, and I can remember the first time when I wanted to get up into the part of the rainforest that was totally unknown. And that was the canopy of the forest. In order to get there, you have to climb trees, very big trees, 60, 70, even 80 meters high. And no one really had done that for science very much. There was a wonderful friend of mine called Ila Mu, who was the first guy to do this in Malaysia. He built the first walkways up in the treetops. And Ila Mu, I heard uh, just this week, sadly, had been killed by COVID virus. He was the first guy to build walkways in this new world. Well, way back in the early 1980s, I was a, a youngster inspired by his work, and I thought, I want to do the same. And so I found myself at the foot of this giant tree in Panama, and I got some engineers to build this rope ladder up the side of the tree. Later, I used climbing ropes. But then I was in the fear and greed position that many traders are in, in financial markets. My desire, my greed to go up and see the upper canopy of the forest was in a kind of equilibrium state with my fear of heights. And I thought, if I go up this ladder, you know, what happens if I fall off? It's really high. I didn't have a safety line, but my excitement about wanting to see this new world overcame all my fears. So I set off up the ladder. I put my foot on the first rung and it broke. The wooden steps were rather rotten. You know, that calls for a reassessment of the risk involved in this. But in, in the end, the greed took over. So off I went up this ladder and I climbed up higher and higher and higher and higher, just clinging to the side of a giant rainforest tree covered in vegetation, wondering about, are there snakes in this vegetation? Are bees going to come and sting me? But you go on all the way up. But there was one thing that happened that I'd never expected to happen when I was three quarters of the way up. And that was that the trees moved. I thought they were going to be solid. And what happened was this huge rainforest tree, I'm now up nearly 50 meters or so, or 40, 50 meters up. It starts swaying over to the left with a terrible creaking noise and then starts swaying over to the right with another creaking noise and wind had grabbed its crown and was waggling this thing backwards and forwards. You know, it's like going up a skyscraper and finding it moves, which they do. It's very disconcerting. The fear then totally took over. I was not in a state of equilibrium. I was clinging to the side of this rat. I know what white knuckle fear means. And I clung to it, shaking, as frightened as I have ever been. It wasn't a good idea to look down. I could see the little white faces of the people below looking up at me and looking up to the tree crown. And I was shaking so much, my legs were becoming weak. I felt as though I was going to let go. That's a pretty tough moment, isn't it? And that's just because there's a lot of adrenaline going around in my bloodstream. If you breathe carefully and it dissipates, the fear goes and the greed takes over. So off we go up into the tree crowns, and there I was, up in the canopy. It was a wonderful moment for me to think of that, that interplay between steady states and equilibrium. I remember later, 
going up these trees, I was much more used to it, climbing up in the middle of the night and going up a climbing rope in total darkness, hanging from a tree bough. And you're just like a caterpillar going up this thing called silken thread. And I'd stop sometimes in total darkness. I couldn't see anything. I was suspended in a state of equilibrium by this rope. And you hang there and listen to the sounds of all the forest and the warmth around you. It's a very, very exciting moment, that state of dynamic, ever-changing equilibrium. Why is it dynamic? Because I'm thinking about that rope is wrapped around a branch, probably 20 meters above me, and there's a rat coming along that branch, and he finds the climbing rope, which is smelling a bit sweaty, and he thinks, that's a tasty meal there. I think I'm going to have a good chew on it. Maybe I'll use the fibers for some nest material. As you're going up the rope, you're wondering whether that rat who'd been there the night before had had a good old gnaw on your climbing rope. And instead of it being absolutely solid, it's down to its last few fibers. That's how fear and greed work. That's how markets work. So if we're trying to imagine a world economy that runs on a different kind of narrative, isn't necessarily the model of more, isn't necessarily infinite growth, what does that look like? It's pretty hard to imagine, isn't it? There's been a few people who've tried to do it. There was Donut Economics, for instance. Kate Raworth has written a really interesting book called Donut Economics, where it tries to consider how you can have an economy that is constrained by planetary boundaries. What do we mean by planetary boundaries? It was Rockstrom and his crowd who, who came up with the idea of nine planetary boundaries. These were kinds of an environmental ceiling through which the economy couldn't really break. Because something also to get straight in our minds is that the economy is not bigger than the ecosystem. It's a subset of an ecosystem. Eco, nomi. Eco has always been an economy. But we are smaller than the ecosystem itself. We depend on that ecosystem, but we have impacts on it. So you can't have an economy that's bigger than the ecosystem. It'll all go wrong. So donut economics was the idea of a donut. And these uh, planetary boundaries were the outer circle of the donut, and in the middle was us. And it's trying to bring together planetary boundaries and social boundaries, what we need as human beings to live. It's a very interesting book. I, I think you should have a look at it. And then Rockstrom with his planetary boundaries and environmental ceilings and how that all works. So they have tried to set out how this model of more might still work in a sort of dynamic equilibrium kind of environment. And then there was another interesting book called Prosperity Without Growth. Well, that to most economists sounds an oxymoron. You know, it can't actually be. How can you have prosperity without growth? And Tim Jackson wrote that book in 2017. So it's another good one to look at. Can you actually have constant prosperity without actually growing. And I've explained to you a bit about how nature has solved that through something called a tropical rainforest. It's constantly changing. It's in a dynamic, steady state. Of course, it needs energy. It's just in the same way as a company gets bigger and bigger, it needs more and more money to survive, but ends up spending more and more time managing itself. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the greatest thing that nature has ever created, if you like, on land, a, a tropical rainforest, survives on sipping energy from the sun, tiny amounts of waste in a closed system that's in a kind of dynamic state of equilibrium. 
There's lots going on, lots of big trades, lots of big companies called trees, lots of small ones called insects, lots of startups, all going on at once. And that system has survived for millions of years. It's worth asking, isn't it? How long do our companies survive? Well, in 1958, the average life of a company was 61 years. In 2016, it had reduced to 18 years. So the greatest inventions that we're creating get bigger and bigger, but last for a short and shorter period of time. That's not what you see in nature. Usually getting bigger and bigger means you survive better and better. Dinosaurs got enormous and lived a very long time as individuals, as a system. Trees can live for a thousand years. But our companies, they get bigger and bigger and live for less and less time. I don't know, but I wonder whether that's a, an indicator of a very sustainable system. I'm not sure it is. They require more and more energy to keep themselves going and spend more and more time managing themselves. And one of the things that creates mayhem in the system, both in nature and in economies, is called a tipping point. A tipping point. What that means is something happens, comes out of left field, and changes everything. In the case of the dinosaurs, it was an asteroid that came from outer space, landed on Earth, blotted out the sun, and destroyed the plants they needed to live on. And the dinosaurs disappeared. It was the small startups that survived, the mammals that were like little mice running around their feet that survived. So, what happens here in our economy? We've seen a massive 2008 tipping point where mortgages went bonkers and everybody was giving everyone mortgages for, because there was so much money supply, so much money coming into the system that was looking for a home. They channeled it out to people who couldn't possibly pay the mortgages back. And that was fine until somebody called foul and the tipping point was reached and everything collapsed. So what do we really mean by tipping points? A tipping point is when you think everything is going really well and then something comes out and changes everything very, very fast. And a safe situation suddenly becomes very, very dangerous. To give you an example, I was visiting an island called Nosy Manga Bay in Madagascar. It's a, quite a small island but it's very famous because it has wonderful black and white ruffed lemurs that live on it. And the animals that live on Madagascar are unique in the world because Madagascar was once attached to Africa. And a long, long time ago, it split off from Africa with a, a whole lot of animals on it that evolved in unique ways that are not found anywhere else. And everybody knows about these lemurs that live there and nowhere else. So I went to visit this island. We had a project there that I was supporting with an organization I was working for at the time called Earthwatch. And we got to this island, saw the black lemurs, worked very hard, and then took a day off. We decided to go diving on some coral reefs nearby, about 10 miles away. We'd had a really nice day diving on the reefs and then came up and it got a bit late and a, a quite a large boat went off back to Nosy Manga Bay over an increasingly rough sea. And I realized I was left in rather a small boat to go back. There were five of us, including a photographer from Country Life magazine, a German mouse lemur expert, uh, a young volunteer who was on the expedition, about 18 years old, myself and the boat driver, who was a local Malagash. And he said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. 
So I thought it would be fine. So we got in the boat, put all our diving equipment in the bottom, and we set off across the sea at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, guess what? You know, at four o'clock, often the wind gets up. So we were about four to five miles off this island on our way on the 10-mile journey. In fact, we were exactly halfway to the island of our destination and exactly five miles off the coast. And the Indian Ocean was out the other way for thousands of miles. I was sitting there, and we were going through big swells, you know, probably 10-meter swells, pretty big, like great big houses. And you go up and down through these, but there was a nasty chop on top of it. You've got to really know what you're doing, going about 20 knots. And I'm sitting there, and we're talking about diving accidents. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure I like this. And I said to my friends, and it still makes the hairs on my neck stand up. And I said, you know what? It doesn't take much to change what looks like a really safe situation into something that's really dangerous. 30 seconds after I'd said it, a great big wave came over the front of the boat. We plowed into the sea and another wave came over the back and we were totally swamped and in the ocean. The engine started dragging the boat down as an outboard. I said to the driver, get that engine off. And he said, that's my life security. I can't get rid of that engine. He said, look, we won't have any life unless you get rid of the engine. So he dived down and started unscrewing the bolts. The big engine fell down into the sea. The outboard was gone with it, his livelihood. The boat floated up to the surface. We were all clinging on it. We managed to put some life jackets on. And then we sat and settled down and thought, what on earth is going to happen? Boy, was that a tipping point. Five miles to the island we wanted to get to, five miles from the island we'd left, five miles to the nearest land on the mainland, and a thousand miles out into the Indian Ocean. The sun is going down, and we're in shark-infested waters off the coast of Madagascar. Not a great place to be. That's a place where you think, how long does equilibrium last? How long do personal survival and group survival. There's a kind of steady state there, isn't there? So we said, oh, well, we're all going to be in this together. And we had to think, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to sing Yellow Submarine for a start. And then we're going to swim and push the boat all the way that five miles to the island we want to get to, because the wind was behind us, the current was with us. If we did one knot per hour, we'd be there in five or six hours. We'd get there by about midnight. And the boat driver said, oh, yeah, that's good, because if we don't get there by midnight, the tide changes and we'll never make it. We'll have to go all the way back to the island we left. Well, that wasn't a very good thing, was it? So I was thinking as we paddled our way singing Yellow Submarine and many other jokes about why it was nice to be out in the middle of a shark-infested ocean than eating the awful food back in our camp. When does personal survival take over from group survival? Is it the first bump of a shark on somebody's ankle? Is it when somebody's leg gets bitten off and everybody goes mad and starts screaming, fighting for themselves? We swam closer and closer to the island through the night. We were never rescued. And we swam for six hours through the dark. And finally, at about two o'clock in the morning, we arrived at Nosimanga Bay, having swum through the surf in the coral reefs on the surrounding the island and was spat out by the waves onto the beach, exhausted. Near the reefs, we were really worried about sharks and the moon starts to play tricks on you with the shadows on the sea. But hey, we survived and we didn't get slashed to bits by the coral. But boy, does that teach you something about tipping points? And of course, that's what happens in our economy. There are these tipping points. 
We're in the middle of another tipping point now with COVID-19, which nature has thrown as a curveball. And it's an indicator of a planet that's not at ease with itself. These things are going to happen more and more as we continue to degrade our environmental system that supports our economy as the model of more demands more land for more things, more commodities. And we are going to see more of these kinds of tipping points occurring, not less. And that's something we really need to think about, is to how we get our economy back into a better state of equilibrium. We need to rethink the concept of growth. We need to rethink the concept of GDP. And to some extent, what we need is some people have called it a GDP of the poor that brings in the needs of poor people alongside the needs of ourselves in, in prosperous Western markets. Possibly a green GDP where the externalities of nature, what nature provides us that we don't cost into products, is included in a green GDP. So we have a much better understanding what GDP really means rather than this sort of growth, growth, growth. And so I guess to sort of end this ramble, this expedition through the concept of dynamic equilibrium and how it applies to our economy and nature. I'll end with some thoughts from the World Forum in Davos, which I was in, talking to some of the leaders of our biggest companies, those companies that only have an 18-year lifespan. Not all. Some of them have survived very, very well, and we should look at those. How have they managed to survive generation after generation? And thinking about what it means to reimagine our economy. It's kind of funny. When you go to the forum, it's in the middle of Davos. There's mountains covered in snow. Up and down the street, there's everybody's trying to get you to come in to look at their event. And in the middle, there's the Congress Hall where all the top cats are having discussions. I found myself in a bar with an advisor to the governor of the Bank of England and also a guy called Stephen Haft, who I'd never met before. And he's a filmmaker. He made Dead Poet Society, a brilliant film quite a few years ago. Now I got an Oscar for it. But actually, what he should have got an Oscar for was inventing something called Earth Day, which on April the 22nd is celebrated every year. And in 1970, he started that with Dennis Hayes, who was harnessing sort of 60s activism to speak out about the need to get the world into a better state about the environment. And that now has grown to a billion people every year taking part in Earth Day and 180 nations. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable how it's grown. And sitting there, we were saying, well, okay, maybe we need another kind of Earth Day. Maybe we need a kind of money day when we start thinking about what's our money for? Maybe what we need is a Earth Money Day where we think that just this model of more that we're all into, maybe that's not quite the right solution. I'm not sure it makes us all happy. Of course, it's made lots of people much better off. Our lives are immeasurably better than they were decades ago, not denying that for one minute. But perhaps we should have Earth Money Day. So we were thinking about this and reimagining the world economy. When out of the side, there's a lot of rock music going on in this bar. A couple of space aliens come up and start dancing all around us and speaking in Bulgarian. And it's a little weird, you know, with all dressed in silver and leotards with sort of horns and masks. And I thought, really bizarre. But in fact, what they were trying to sell to us was a little bit more of the model of more. It was a, a new computer game that they were marketing. And I thought of this, it really made me remember that day. Here we are in the World Economic Forum, 
really trying to redesign the way our economy works with the model of more trying to sell us things dressed up as space aliens with an advisor to the Bank of England and the man who invented Earth Day. It was a pretty potent mix. And it's kind of exciting to think how things have changed because at that forum, for the first time, nature was on everyone's lips. The World Economic Forum itself produced a report called Global Risks 2020. And guess what? Environment was in every one of the top five risks. Biodiversity, nature and life on Earth, was the third most important risk facing the economy in 2020, according to their reports. And a lot of reports have come out now saying that. So I feel quite hopeful that here in this club of the world's biggest businesses and the biggest and most powerful CEOs from all over the world, North and South, they're beginning to think about this, beginning to reimagine a new model of more or a new model of growth and a new way to run our economy, to put eco back into the economy in the future. And that's a pretty hopeful thought, isn't it? Maybe we will find a new model, a new lesson from nature, which is a more of a dynamic equilibrium model for our economy in the future. That will create what we all need, which is wealth that's worth having. I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you've been listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts where we look at trying to find a new kind of balance between money and nature.